Brand new VanCast for you as we come out of the Easter long weekend. Hopefully it was a good one for everybody and all the VIPs and transfer. Hopefully it was a, a decent one for you as well. Yeah, I got after some mini eggs. I actually made some mini egg cookies, Jeff, um, which uh, were very good. Like, excellent. Top notch. Really enjoyed it. And, you know, my wife's been working round the clock, so from home, too. Like, you can probably... Some of our listeners have probably heard her in the background occasionally in recent episodes, but the... Uh, you know, she actually was able to take a few days and, you know, we took some walks around the neighborhood and, and were able to have some patio beers and, and kind of catch up, uh, which we actually, I mean, honestly, I, I was probably seeing more of her before the, <laughs> the shutdown. So it's been nice. Uh, I have to admit that uh, the whole pandemic is starting to take a little bit of a toll on me. Uh, and I know this because the other night I had this dream that I was recording a country album, um, which my God, going to happen first. Of, yeah, no, don't get your hopes up. I've got the cover, uh, though, of you pulling the axe out of the wood panel in Nashville, Jeff. <laughs> That's true. We did, yeah. do, we did do some axe throwing yeah. uh, way, back when, when they, way back when they were actually playing hockey and yep. we were traveling around the continent to cover them. But, uh, yeah, I don't know where that came from. Not a country guy. Uh, so I kind of woke up laughing to myself that, like, all right, this is where we are in this one <laughs> recording a <laughs> recording a country album. Oh, my God. Uh, somebody... Yeah, somebody get me some help. But uh, <laughs> hey, we put out the call. We put out the call on social uh, that this would be a mailbag edition. We like to do this uh, occasionally throughout the season, and not a whole lot going on with the Vancouver Canucks, but we want to keep the content out there. So uh, thanks to everybody. Uh, some terrific response and a lot of good questions, and we will dip into the mailbag uh, coming up here momentarily. We'll also it's your turn uh, to stump me. Uh, when we do our name that Canuck, we have done Jason King, we've done Brad Richardson, uh, ball is back in your court. So we'll get to name that Canuck uh, coming up yeah. here shortly. I'm really but excited, man. Just... I've got a meat yeah. each selection. This this is a oh, good geez. one. Uh-oh. All right. Yeah. I'm racking my brain, racking my brain already. <laughs> uh, a tiny little bit of Canuck news over the weekend, and as much, and not a surprise to anybody, but uh, it sounds like uh, the end of Nikolai Goldobin's time in the organization. Looks like he's going to go back and play in the KHL. Uh, anybody that has talked to Goldobin over the years knows that he wanted it to work here. Uh, I think a lot of people thought, you know, he might bolt back to the K, but uh, whenever you talk to him, uh, and look, I give this guy a ton of credit. Uh, you know, a lot of it was on him, but at the same time, you know, it didn't go his way, but man, he always kept, a, at least for public appearances, uh, you know, positive, upbeat guy, smile on his face. Uh, I think he, you know, he, he wanted to make it work here. He wanted to be in the NHL, and you can understand why. Uh, got one game barely played in Pittsburgh earlier this year, and that was uh, it for him, and now he's uh, headed back home. So uh, I know Jim Benning was quoted uh, in a Coos piece in the province. Uh, you know, they felt the Canucks gave him a fair shake, but, you know, just didn't ever work. Uh, him and Travis Green seemed to have some differences of opinion in the way that uh, Goldobin approached the game. Uh, the organization always said no real issues with him in the offensive end. It was defensively and without the puck uh, that he just didn't measure up. Yeah, and you know, he struggled, I think, emotionally, right, down in Utica. I mean, he was so happy to see me just as a familiar face, and I barely covered him when he was an NHL player uh, when I went down to Utica in November. Uh, and you know, he was always good to talk to, always very open, I think, and you know, Look, he's a good playmaker. Like, he's an NHL-quality playmaker. He's not an NHL-quality two-way piece. And that's ultimately, you know, what hurt him, especially in a lineup like the one Travis Green tends to run, where, you know, you, you, you play from your own end out, right? Like, we've seen guys with less skill get more shot 
more run because of their work rate, because of their defensive play. And we've seen guys in a similar mold, like Jake Vertanen, for example, who've sort of struggled with the details of the game, you know, struggle to earn a permanent spot where their offensive skills might dictate. And so so it goes. I mean, Travis Green's not unique in that respect. I, I do think that Goldobin is an NHL-level player, especially if you're talking about, you know, one of those sort of lower-end teams that need some offensive help. Like, there's no way. You cannot tell me that Goldobin couldn't have been an improvement over what four or five teams, including your Los Angeles and your Ottawa's, you know, trotted out there on a nightly basis in their top six. And, you know, it's too bad that they never found him a landing spot. It's too bad that that never sort of worked out and he got another shot. Uh, but look, he's going to the K, he's going to a good team, he'll have a shot to sort of rebuild his value, and he wouldn't be the first guy to struggle in his first stint in North America, go go up back to Russia and sort of make a return in their mid to late 20s. I mean, I think about Evgeny Dadnov, who I worked with in Florida, and he's now pending UFA, and I bet you he's a pretty expensive pending UFA, and he washed out after his first shot. Like, it's not the end for Nikolai Goldobin, even if it is almost surely the end of Nikolai Goldobin in this organization, at least uh, under this current regime and with this current head coach. All right. And I guess what it does is, you know, the sort of the overarching um, perspective is that it was trade deadline 2017, Yannick Hansen, Alex Burroughs out the door in exchange for Goldobin and Jonathan Dallin, essentially. And here the Canucks are three years later and nothing to show for either one of those moves. Now, uh, you know, it was still the right thing to do. Yeah, those the are good trades. Good bets. The management group. Right. It, yeah. But I just it just speaks to sort of the volatility of uh, the whole prospect market, right? Like you just, until a guy hits in the NHL, he is a prospect and that's all he is. And so, you know, they made the right, I'm with you. They, they, those were the right things for the organization at that time. I think they probably were about the best that they could have done. And I remember that night, and I mean, that's sort of botch at his Tuesday gym, and there was some real excitement in the market that, look, they were selling off, uh, they were reloading or rebuilding, and these were supposed to be two pieces of the rebuild. You know, you take your swing, sometimes you make connections, sometimes uh, you, you swing and you, you miss. And, uh, you know, I don't think you can say they swung and missed necessarily on Goldobin. Obviously, the Dolan situation, uh, that was different, and it didn't work out for them, and it may not work out for San Jose now either. But at the time, I mean, there was some real enthusiasm in this market that they had sort of fleeced the Ottawa Senators to <laughs> get Jonathan Dolan for this aging Alex Burroughs that really shouldn't have had that kind of market value. Yeah, and, you know, it's funny to look back and think about some of the young talent that the Canucks have brought in in the deadline, at the deadline in recent years, or in Jim's tenure anyway, right? And you you sort of think of Sven Berchi, not not exactly a selling deal, but nonetheless, uh, Goldobin, Dolan. And the most heavily criticized of the deadline deals uh, in terms of the seller's sort of market was the Vanek deal, right? Which brought in Tyler Mott, who's still on the roster. Like Tyler Mott, the most heavily criticized of the deals, you know, he's the guy who I'd expect to be re-signed as an RFA this summer, who I'd expect to contribute on this team next year. Um, You know, it's just, it just goes to, or it just speaks to what you were sort of alluding to, which is... The attrition rate for prospects is pretty high. You know, making the NHL, being one of the top, you know, 23 times 30, 600 players in the world, um, you know, or the 800th best player in the world. Like, th- those lines, those margins, they're extraordinarily fine. And, you know, it's really odd things sometimes that makes up the difference. And, you know, in Mott's case, it's the work rate and the sp- and the skating. 
Um, you know, Goldobin's hands played in the NHL. He was productive. Um, he helped a variety of Vancouver's top six forwards drive play when he skated with them. But, you know, there were clear sort of blind spots in the details of his game. And, you know, I, I think when Jim says they gave him a fair shot, I don't think there's a lot of disagreement in this market. And he sort of just looked back to those lean years where Goldobin was such a hot topic of debate. And it's like, you know, sometimes that just happens in markets that are starved for talent. Like sometimes you spend a lot of time debating a guy and it turns out he's a fringe NHLer at best. And, and I just kind of think that's how we'll recall the Goldobin Wars and this sort of story, his Canucks tenure. All right, let's dip into the mailbag here, and we'll start. We'll go from one young Russian to another, but uh, uh, different players, obviously, and, and one that the Canucks have high, high hopes for. Uh, we got a lot of questions uh, about Pod Coles, and this one uh, came from Jazz Karen at Jazz Karen Canucks on Twitter. Uh, essentially, thoughts on Pod Coles, and here we are, almost a year removed from the draft, tenth overall pick. Last year, uh, we know that he struggled to see ice time in the K, but by all accounts, and I know Harm wrote a piece recently uh, at The Athletic, you know, the way that he finished the season, are you more bullish on him now as a year removed from the draft? Or uh, how do you view Pod Colson's first year since being a member of the Canuck organization? So I just want to be honest with our listeners that I watched Pod Colson play some in the World Juniors, and that's about it for me this season. Like, I, you know, covering the team day to day, I just didn't have a ton of time to delve into prospects. Yeah. That tends to be an off-season project for me. So I reached out to some people I trust who follow the KHL much more closely, um, some of whom work for NHL front offices and on and on. And the basic reports that I got were, you know, when Pod Colson was playing in the K, he played well throughout the season, but he was a 13th forward on, you know, a loaded team. And that team never sustained injuries in that first sort of part of the year. So he goes down to the VHL and what I'm told about the VHL is that it's almost like a choppier version of the American League. And we've seen players, like skill players, not produce quite the way you'd expect at the AHL level just because it is, you know, less of a skill game all around in terms of the environment that you're playing in. And the VHL is like that on steroids. So he struggled to produce in the VHL, but by all accounts, his form, his two-way play um, was excellent. And so... That's sort of what you saw, too, in the World Juniors, where he was assertive, he was physical, um, he tilted the ice in Russia's sort of direction, uh, favorable direction, but the scoring just wasn't there. And, and sort of in the back half of the season, he finally sort of gets this shot in the KHL, and he's put on this kind of kids line with, um, oh my god, it's Marchenko, and it's, excuse me, it's Marchenko, and it's, um, it'll come to me. And, oh, M Morozov, right. So he gets put with Marchenko and Morozov, and his KHL team builds this kid's line, and this kid's line just takes over, like starts producing it all clicks for Pod Colson. Um, their control of shot and goal share based on, you know, the KHL version of underlying numbers is excellent, and they start to produce, right, which is the most important part, I think, because Pod Colson's a guy who, because of his physical skill set, because of how you know, big he is and fast he is and that those physical tools, like he, he definitely helps you control play and drive play. The question is, will he be able to produce enough to be that 50 point sort of top six forward? 
And based on what we saw in the second half of the season, like if it's clicking like that for, for Pod Colson, then yeah, he's got a real shot at being that top six power forward that's so hard to find in the NHL. And if he's not, he might just be, you know, more like in that Nachushkin mold, right? More of a sort of defensive presence, kind of bottom six guy. But the physical tools are there. And over the second half of the season, once he finally got regular playing time in, in an environment like the KHL, on that kid line, he really became excellent and, and reached out to another. Is actually, I reached out to JD Burke, who's our, our, our good friend and the you know editor of EliteProspects.com, runs his own sort of scouting department for that outlet. And he says he's got the potential to be a 50 point plus winger at the HL level with a two way profile that's among the best at his position. Um, and he praises his energy, pace, and power. Um, you know, everyone sort of says, everyone you talk to, pro scouts, J.D. Burke, other people who watch the KHL closely say that his two-way profile is consistent and mouthwatering. The question is, will he produce enough um, based on the evidence of this season? Once he finally sort of settled into consistent ice time, he did it. I think that's an excellent sign and would probably be, you know, a, a reason for significant optimism. And certainly as I've sort of evaluated the evidence and, and opinion uh, that I've sort of ferreted out from the experts last night. Um, you know, I think that there's a lot of reasons to be more positive about him now than there was when the Canucks made him the 10th overall pick. Right, and I've seen people that I trust that suggest, like, he wouldn't look out of place in the NHL next season. It's not going to happen for him, but just the way that he plays, as you mentioned, sort of the, the two-way profile, uh, hounding pucks and those types of things, that he wouldn't look out of place in the NHL next year, but he's going to finish up uh, the contract in the K, and by the time he arrives on the Canucks doorstep, you know, just over a year from now, uh, absolutely should be able to hit the ground running. Uh, heavy Russian theme to this week's VanCast, and yeah. that's great. There's uh, lots of questions. Another one here, uh, Ryan G at Ryan Ryan 44 on Twitter. Trampkin has become a bit of a prima donna, seemingly. <laughs> is he is he worth the risk uh. when the locker room chemistry is good? God, I have no time for this, JPAT. I'm going to just, like, start it with that. <laughs> I have no time. Like... Contract negotiations are about leverage, right? And the leverage that Russian players have is that they can get paid fairly well in the UK. So when you're bringing them over, they're all going to have European out clauses. And teams can ask a guy to waive that European out clause and go and report to the AHL and ride the bus. And, you know, but I mean, for Russian players, like if you're if you're living in Vancouver, which doesn't have a significant Russian community, that's one thing. At least it's beautiful and the flights aren't the flights are plentiful and on and on. But if you're living in Utica, right, if you're living in Springfield, if you're living in Manchester or on and on, like it's a totally different equation. It shifts the sort of learning curve, the the loneliness curve, the adjustment to life in North America curve that these players experience. And it's not just Russian players, it's European players too. And so look, European out clauses, that's the cost of doing business. It's like burning a year of an AHL guy's, or sorry, of a college guy's deal when you're signing him as a free agent. Like it's the cost of getting that guy under contract at the NHL level you know, who, you know who has a European out clause in their contract? Elias Pettersson, right? Like, like these are, that's, that's the cost of it. That's what you have to sign a guy like Elias Pettersson to, to get him to come over. Elias Pettersson, not only does he have a European out clause, he's paid like a first round pick. He's the highest paid fifth round pick in terms of his entry level contract ever. 
because he had a rocket fuel age 18 season in the SHL and led Vaqua to the SHL championship. And guess what? That gave him leverage to get a European out clause and an outsized contract. Like that's leverage. That's business. We don't, we don't, you can read nothing into his character or comportment based on his use and his representative's use of leverage. If he doesn't want to go to the AHL, look, I think he'd be best served in terms of his NHL potential in reaching it, having played in in the A, having stayed in the North American game. But what I think, what Benning thinks, it doesn't matter. Like what matters is the leverage that he has to get the deal that he can get from the Canucks or another NHL team. And, and obviously the Canucks control is right. So that's sort of a more complicated equation. We, we know nothing of Triamkin based on that. We know nothing of his character based on that. And, and I just think that formulation's ridiculous. Triamkin, by all accounts, you know, struggled to adjust to life in North America for reasons that had nothing to do with how he was received in the locker room or how he is as a guy or his being a prima donna or selfish. It's just a significant culture clash. And in terms of signing him, like you have to understand that you have to anticipate that. And with pod Colson coming, like there is reason why the Canucks may want to look at bringing in a Russian born free agent or a Russian speaker, uh, just to sort of flesh out and, and, and sort of, make that curve, flatten that curve, as it were, the adjustment, <laughs> the adjustment that a, that a Russian speaker might have should they come over and be a, a central contributor um, on this team. Right. And just further to your first point, like, you know, negotiations, I mean, every player goes through that to get contracts done. The players in the locker room now, they just want the team to get better. Yes. And if Canucks management truly believes that Trampkin can be a piece of the puzzle here moving forward, uh, they don't care. Like they're just like get him signed then, and 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 two the other thing like it's not like he's coming in completely sight unseen to a lot of those guys in the locker room. He's been there. They know him. Uh, you know they have a sense of who he is and what he's all about. And you know I do think that that would allow him to kind of hit the ground running uh, better than it would have the first time around when there really was an adjustment for him and you know one that he never fully figured out. But new coaching staff here as well. So uh, in a lot of ways the slate is clean. But ultimately remember that players just want their teams to get better. And uh, if it means that there's uh, contentious negotiations. Uh, that just comes with the territory of professional sports. All right, uh, Yerky21, at Yerky21 on Twitter. The I love this question. The perfect marriage of the sports in a biodome idea and hockey with social distancing. Is it not live, life-size bubble hockey? No risk of contact when you're physically constrained to your wing. So here's the million-dollar question. Who would get to control the giant sticks attached to the players <laughs> in this scenario? Do we just turn it over to the GMs? Is it like are the GMs or the coaches? Well, wouldn't it have to be like a giant, or wouldn't you need like a team of people <laughs> controlling the sticks if they're as giant as Yerky has suggested? Um, you know, I also don't know like who would who would consent to just standing on a platform and holding their stick rigid. Like that just seems like uh, you know that's what she said. That who would who would consent to this though? Um, I, I you know look, I love the proposition. I want to see it happen. It sounds phenomenal. Like it sounds like you'd need you know you, realistically how how big would the playing surface need to be to accommodate this? Like it would need to be double the size of an NHL rink. The sticks would be mammoth. I think you'd have like one member of the assist, of the assistant coaching staff per stick. Like it would be a whole team effort. That's sort of how I see it. Right, but then, so what happens when inevitably the puck gets stuck in the corner there where <laughs> nobody can touch it, and you have to sort of tilt the whole game to get the puck 
that would be difficult if we're talking like life-size actual dimensions of a hockey rink. So uh, a point to ponder certainly will uh, leave that one uh, a little bit of a thought <laughs> exercise, if you will. Uh, Steve B, at Steve B Phased, do you foresee any marginal teams in non-hockey markets folding? Because of this, wow. Look, you've got uh, more experience than I do in the non-traditional hockey markets. Uh, non-hockey markets is a strong term because, uh, look, they put teams there. That makes them hockey markets, I suppose. Uh, but they are non- still non-traditional hockey markets. I don't, I don't think, I mean, I guess I want to believe that we're going to see light at the end of this tunnel uh, sooner rather than later to the point that the existing teams plus Seattle will all still be there uh, as they were when all of this started. So I don't think it's going to run anybody out of business entirely. But again, you would have a better feel sort of for the economics having lived and worked in South Florida. Yeah, look, it's really simple. Like you look at what an NHL payroll costs. The uh, fact of the matter is, is that you have to pay at least $60.8 million to field a team um, in this current cap environment. And mo- almost no one is a floor team anymore, right? Other than Ottawa. But like no one's a floor team. Everyone's running $70 million plus $75 million um, lineups out there. So look, in a world where the players get paid and there's no sort of play occurring, which is what happened toward the balance of this season, but certainly wouldn't happen if more than that was canceled, uh, then you'd be at real risk for not even just teams in non-hockey markets, but anyone because of the sort of lack of revenue combined with the expenditure of paying your NHL lineup. But I mean, I don't think you're going to see any teams fold. I think the more interesting question is we have seen in the past, uh, certainly we saw it in 05, certainly we saw it in 12, 13, that for about 10 to 12 markets in hockey, and that's your Vancouver's, your Boston's, your New York's, your Toronto's, you come back from the lockout or and uh, tickets sell like gangbusters. Like interest is actually higher because people have been, you know, hockey's essentially been rationed and people are, people are thirsty to consume more of the sport. In about eight other, eight to 10 other markets, you don't see much of an impact at all. Like it's just business as usual. It's always a little bit tougher. Um, People sort of support their teams and on and on. But there are, you know, five to seven markets in the NHL where when hockey goes away, it's out of mind in in a more significant way because of the sort of cultural, uh, the like tectonic cultural forces that hockey is up against in some of those non-traditional markets. So look, no, not, I don't think there's an NHL franchise in danger of folding. Do I think there's NHL franchises that are going to see dips, significant dips in attendance, revenue, interest, television ratings that will take years to overcome? Uh, yeah, I, I, I do think that that that, that will happen. All right, we'll carry on here in the mailbag on this week's edition of the VanCast from T, just capital letter T, at Wild Canucks. If you had a time machine and could go back and reverse any one Benning move, which is it? I think we should sort of move past Lou Erickson because that seems like the easiest one. So I, I would propose that we take Louie off the board. Yeah, Louie's the consensus question. pick, so sure. Yes. So if you had a time machine, could go back and reverse any one Benning move, which is it? For me, it might be going back to the hiring of Willie D. I just, you know, knowing what we know now. But I'm are you sure categorizing that, that as a as a Benning move? I, know. I don't know, man. Well, I would quibble with that. Okay, that's a Trevor Fair move. Enough. 
certainly the Medicine Hat connections are strong there, but Jim was in place sure. as the general manager. So that like, I'm using it as the time frame Fair. here. But but if we're talking about player move, then uh, oh, you know there are a number of other contracts that have uh, been an issue. <laughs> I, I I didn't like Jay Beagle signing at the time, and and this has nothing to do with Jay Beagle the person, but it just you know he was redundant right from the outset with Brandon Sutter on the job, and to think that there's still two more years left on that contract, uh, that's one that uh, you know there's money that could probably be better spent for this hockey club moving forward. Yep, I think that's a good pick. I think my ultimate there's two contenders for me once we get past Louis, and it's. The Olio Levy pick, right? I think yeah. that's a tough yep. one. And the Brandon Sutter trade, I think, has got to be up there. Mm. Because in Nick Bonino, the Canucks essentially paid a premium, right? They paid Nick Bonino. They gave up Adam Clendenning, who, whatever, I mean, good HL player. And a second-round pick. And that second-round pick, Pittsburgh wastes it on a goaltender. But the next two picks are Dylan Dubé of the Calgary Flames and... That Grundstrom kid who's, you know, a, a piece of work, like a nasty piece of work along the wall uh, down in L.A. Uh, both of those players would play bottom six minutes for the Canucks and do so affordably, right? Uh, something that the Canucks don't have a lot of outside of Mott and McEwen. So, uh, I guess, and Gaudette. So, um, for me anyway, when you pay a premium to get a player who is significantly outperformed at a higher cap hit than the player that you deal... And that player goes on to be a key clutch goal scorer for a team that wins two straight Stanley Cups. I mean, that, that it's hard for me to sort of get over that as a pretty significant mismanagement of assets and, and a mistake of player evaluation. Right. And then, of course, like so many of Jim's early trades, they doubled down, right? Before Sutter had ever played a game, they gave him the contract extension too, which, you know... Oh, now that contract is uh, certainly coming back to to haunt them a little bit with one year left on it. Uh, T gets in a second can question we, here on a lighter f- note. Oh, yeah. Let's flip it though. Let's yeah. go with a let's go with a best best move. Yeah, just to balance it out, just to do the just no. to do the both sides thing. Sure. I mean, I, I think JT Miller has been his best trade. Wow. Uh, More over Tanner Pearson for Good Branson. That was a. It turned out to be a great trade at the time. It just looked like contract out, contract in. I mean, I right. had no expectations for Tanner Pearson. Tanner Pearson was wallowing in Pittsburgh. It's worked out well, and I'm glad uh, for Pearson, and it's been good for the Vancouver Canucks. But I still think, in terms of you know a guy that came in and made the impact that he did, I, I would put the JT Miller deal ahead of Tanner Pearson. But to get Tanner Pearson ultimately for a player that was playing himself uh, certainly out of the city. And at the time, I thought maybe playing himself right out of the league, although he's still a member of the Anaheim Ducks. Um, you know, no, that's turned out to be a terrific deal for the for the hockey club. But but I'll still go with JT Miller. Yep, I I think those are the contenders anyway. And then obviously you okay. put things like the Pedersen and and Hughes pick uh, on the ledger as well. But ultimately, I, I I look, I think you're right. I think you make a compelling case. What Miller's brought is of a magnitude greater than Pearson. And even though we don't know what the ultimate cost of that will be. Uh, one thing one thing that would restrain my enthusiasm is if you look at all the deals for conditional picks that occurred this past year, including the like the Taylor Hall trade and on and on, most teams did top three protected protections. Like the conditional pick is it's top three protected. Um, and the Canucks sort of were just like a little bit behind the eight ball. Like the way that conditions have become 
en vogue in the NHL immediately changed following that JT Miller deal, um, that would be my only hesitation. Like, if there was a top three protection in place on that pick, I'd be saying Miller uh, in a heartbeat. All right. Uh, at Wild Canucks gets in one other. On a lighter note, how many rolls of TP do each of you have in your house right now? I will say my wife and I, when we went to the store last week, uh, were delighted to see that uh, the store shelves were restocked with toilet paper. And so we uh, we loaded up. We didn't hoard by any means, but uh, we're well stocked. I don't know the number of rolls, but uh, certainly well into double digits. Let's just go with that. I know I know the exact number of rolls. 20. I'm, I'm at 20. Oh. 20 remaining. Um, at 950 squares per roll, that's, <laughs> I don't actually know if that's true, but, uh, but yeah, I mean, look, we're, uh, we're, we're, we're fine. We're fine. We're going to, we're all going to be fine. The toilet paper hoarding was ridiculous. We're all fine. A uh, couple more questions. Cause then we got to leave time to finish up with name that Canuck, uh, Jason Emu at JD Emu. Do the Canucks have the choice on which first rounder they give to Tampa? Since this is a deep draft, would they prefer to keep this year's even outside the lottery and roll the dice next year? Fascinating question. Will especially fascinating because of the in or out status that the Canucks have. Like, if the Canucks make the playoffs but don't get any playoff games, will they be able to argue that they should have the choice? Like, how does that play out? I have no idea, right? Um, but I think it's a, an especially fascinating question because of where the league stopped and the fact that the Canucks are in by one calculation and out by another. Um, or or the question could be the, the league adopts a 24-team playoff format. Does that count as a playoff berth for the Canucks for the purposes of that pick? So the answer is no. The Canucks cannot choose. If they are judged to have made the playoffs, then the condition is commuted. But considering sort of the, the force majeure moment that we're in, um, might there be some wiggle room? And if there is, should they lobby to give up this pick? To lock in the cost of the JT Miller deal for me, yep, in a heartbeat. All right. One last question, and it comes from Wyatt, the stanchion. And I wanted to mention him because uh, he fell to Luongo, obviously, in the finale, the grand finale of Canucks Twitter March Madness. So we salute River Luongo. He does finally get that that championship in Vancouver that, that he sought for all those years. Uh, and absolutely dusted Wyatt, which surprised me, quite frankly. And it then, yeah. you know, it brought up this sort of philosophical question, is Luongo even a part of Canucks Twitter to begin with? Uh, and <laughs> why we have in our fan survey at The Athletic, by the way. Yeah, and, and look, Wyatt, <laughs> Wyatt, Wyatt went deep on uh, his dirty tricks and his campaigning and, you know, the efforts that Wyatt was great. puts in and put in. Uh, he deserved to be the champ, and ultimately I wanted to say that I lost to the champ, and so I can't even say that. But I was likewise. I was frankly surprised at the margin of victory, 70-30 uh, for Roberto Luongo in the championship bracket. So uh, congrats to Lou. Wyatt, uh, a fierce competitor and uh, certainly a huge part and a loud voice of on Connect's Twitter. And he wanted to know if it's weird to order chicken fingers from a Greek restaurant. Yeah, it's ridiculous. Uh, as a parent of a daughter who is pretty finicky when it comes to food, yeah, I think we have. I, get, I, I made an allowance for children. Okay, I will. Right, I, I say. I say, I'll if you're eight years old and under, it's fine. 
Yeah, my daughter's a little older than that, but uh, still goes down. <laughs> still lives on Chicken Finger Boulevard uh, in a lot of restaurants. Doesn't matter uh, the type of food. Right. And I will say, as a guy that has uh, eaten my share of chicken fingers over the years, I do find it to be a comfort food. A Greek restaurant, I love Greek, so I would say it's a little strange in that setting. But I've got a little more time because, as you know, Wyatt and I had proposed to do this food podcast that... Um, <laughs> <laughs> this isn't real, is it? No, not at all. Okay, good. <laughs> but in that world, in that world, apparently you hijacked this grand plan of ours that we were going to do. <laughs> we were going to do a food and hockey podcast, and you slid in there and somehow wrestled me away as a pod partner. So I think Wyatt holds a grudge. Can we give shouts? Yeah. Can we give shouts to JD Burke's impression? Sure. Unbelievable. Yeah. It's so good. Like it's not actually good. It doesn't. It's not accurate. It's just funny. <laughs> Like, the meta is so funny. The, like, enunciate every syllable is so good. Like, I was losing it, crying laughing at that smear campaign, Jeff. Well, they were all good. Like, I do give Wyatt a ton of credit. Uh, he put together some uh, some good stuff, some great content. And uh, at this time, like, tremendous. that whole idea, if, uh, I think it was the D-Keeper that started it. Uh, it was passed on to, to Samantha, and she was uh, overseeing things. So credit to everybody involved. Uh, it was good fun, and at this time, you know, it kind of filled that void of competition uh, for a lot of people. Yeah. Uh, all right, let's finish up. Let's finish up with Nanak Canuck. All right, you ready for this? I'm really know. happy with this one. Okay. All right. Among the all-time single-season PIMS leaders in Canuck's history, Donald Brashear ranks number one. Gino Ojik's name appears ten, five, sorry, five times in the top ten. Tiger Williams three times. That's a total of nine. So this player rounds out the top ten with a single entry. Ooh. Um, off the top of my head, I'm going to say Garth Butcher. Wow, three points. Damn. Come on. Yeah, nailed it. Serious. Yeah. First guess, wow. three points. Congratulations, man. That's a big one. Nice get. Nice pull. Wow. So the okay. I've, I've impressed myself. The the <laughs> second the second clue was a was a crossword puzzle clue, and it was if Wayne's co-host hawked red meat. <laughs> All right. And clue That's number good. three was this player was involved in two separate trades that included the following Canucks legends, using that word loosely. Jeff Cortnell, Sergio Mameso, Cliff Ronning, Matt Sundin, and the draft pick used to select Nolan Baumgartner. It's wow. a lot yeah, of Canucks I, ties. That is, and I, I think I, if I hadn't got it the first go-round, I probably would have been able to put it together. with the. I like the creativity of the second clue, but uh, yeah, I'm doing a victory lap here. For, yeah, uh, no, well done. Surging in front now. Big uh, pull. My, yeah, three tremendous point victory here. Tremendous stuff. So you're at four point five points. I'm at two. Um, uh, you know, a lot of pressure on me now for for Thursday's pod. That's right. Uh, look, there's not anything happening on the ice. We know that there isn't a whole lot happening off the ice these days, but there is still a fair bit happening at the athletic, and that's the beauty of the athletic that you guys, uh, you and Harm and Stanch, when he's involved as well, and I think he was involved in. Uh, at least uh, his name figures in the uh, <laughs> the poll. Well, let's yeah. just quickly wrap things up by talking about uh, the Canuck fan poll that uh, was released online this morning on the app as well. Uh, a chance for people to weigh in and, and share their opinion on a number of things. 
around and involving the Canuck organization sort of top to bottom these days. Yeah, it's the Canucks fan survey. And look, we've got a nice, large, engaged audience. So we're hoping we'll get a couple thousand responses and dig into the numbers and then have some sort of, you know, baseline for what the VIP opinion is on the franchise that we all follow and, and in your and I, my case cover. Uh, so look, really excited about that. And you can go find it at theathletic.com slash Vancouver. Um, we're running, it's called the Canucks Fans Survey. And, you know, a lot of athletic markets are doing it, but we think it's a fun way to, to waste some time. Um, but also to, you know, understand better perhaps what some of the biases and opinions of you know the fans who read our work which is sort of some of the most engaged fans in one of the most engaged hockey markets in the world I I suspect the results are going to be fascinating and extreme I'm really looking forward to digging into that in about 10 days but tomorrow we've got a big JT Miller piece dropping um, sort of on his last week of normal before the NHL season got shut down Um, Some really good detail. I worked really hard on it. I'm really excited to drop that on the VIPs. And then on Thursday, the simulated first round series between the Minnesota Wild and the Vancouver Canucks featuring in Sedin Cup format, me versus the GOAT, Mike Russo of the Athletic Minnesota. Should be interesting. Yeah, I look forward to that. We'll see if the Canucks can stay on that run that they were on to finish up the regular season. What were thirteen one and one? No, eleven one and one in those yeah. thirteen games that were never played. So they ride this w- wave of momentum into these imaginary playoffs. Maybe yeah. they'll be Host- played in hosting a two seven matchup. <laughs> all, all games to be played inside a giant biodome. Yeah, exactly. Uh, with, and you and Russo will control the sticks, I suppose. Uh, exactly. Hey, Shea Weber, the captain of the Montreal Canadiens, joins his former teammate Shan O'Brien and the Athletics' Josh Cooper at Point Breakaway. If you're looking for some other hockey content, like a BC boy uh, showing up there on uh, Point Breakaway. Also, we ask you to please rate and subscribe the VanCast on Apple. We said uh, we'll continue to go twice a week here. Uh, eventually, the news cycle around the Vancouver Canucks will pick up, but... Uh, you know, with mailbag and everything else, the name that Canuck, we're having uh, some fun and having no problem uh, coming up with our own content. But uh, if you're enjoying it, uh, please rate and subscribe the VanCast on Apple. If you click on the show URL, theathletic.com slash thevancast, you'll get 40% off your subscription to The Athletic. So get out there, find the Vancouver uh, Canucks fan survey that's uh, available now online, the Twitter link, and also on the app. Fill it out and uh, look forward to all of those results in the weeks ahead. Drancer, as always, good fun. Thanks. And uh, it's my turn to try to stump you when we next assemble for the VanCast later this week here at The Athletic and TheAthletic.com.